were now all locked in the room. We were closing the doors. So if you didn't come up already and get a copy of Appendix in, please do. We have photocopies for you. Um, we're going to introduce ourselves and tell you while we're here, and then we're going to um, talk a little bit about, about our seminar topic. So my name is Joseph Goodman. Um, I own Goodman Games, and I guess part of the reason we, we have this seminar at all is that we publish a game called Dungeon Crawl Classics Role-Playing Game. And starting about, I don't know, six or seven years ago, I, I personally decided to read um, as many of the works as I could from Gary Gygax's Appendix In, which you can see here is from the original AD&D and was the list of works that inspired him to write uh, write D&D and then AD&D. Um, so I've read, um, I've actually read every single thing on this list. Um, but some of it was a couple years ago, some of it was more recent. Um, and the purpose of the seminar is to talk about how that's influenced uh, all of our, I guess, just gaming and, and thought process about sort of fiction as it applies to gaming. So why don't we introduce ourselves, then we'll dive in. Hi, guys. I'm Harley Stroh, uh, author of a few Dungeon Crawl classics, most recently uh, Journey to the Center of Aaron. I'm uh, Jim Wampler. I write, edit, and do some layout in our direction. Uh, and I've recently turned in the manuscript for the Mutant Crawl Classics Adventure. And anybody who backed it who's here, thank you very much for backing it. Uh, I'm Michael Curtis. Uh, I'm also a writer for Goodman Games and uh, an armchair appendix and scholar. So. <laughs> I'm Joe Bittman. I write for Goodman Games and other places. Uh, last thing I did was uh, Monster Alphabet for Goodman. That's right, yeah. Yeah, and uh, then I did last, other last thing, I guess more recent would be Lamentations of the Flame Princess, Towers 2. So we thought we'd lead off, and you have the list in front of you. What, what's funny about Appendix N is, you know, everybody's heard of Tolkien, everybody's heard of certain authors, but in many cases, the guys that are, quote, famous are not the biggest influences on D&D, or in many cases, um, didn't affect things as much as some of the lesser known names. And if you go back and read the works on this list, it's amazing how much of of, of, of this work creeps directly into d and I was talking to somebody at the booth today and the idea of somatic components, you know, I first encountered that in D&D, but, but Guy X got that directly from one of the authors on this list who was the first to use that term. So we thought we'd start by talking about what, what Mike here calls the famous five, which yeah. are the sort of best known authors on this list. Then after that, we'll talk about some of the lesser known authors and then we'll sort of talk about our own sort of, which ones have personally influenced our own writing and gaming the most. So, uh, so of course, this is all subjective. Everybody's going to have their own little variations of who the famous five is. But if we're talking about who's kind of had the most impact on fantasy, you know, <coughs> as, as kind of like even mainstream fantasy, uh, the famous five I put down is what I call two Americans, two Englishmen, and Amer an American wishes he was an Englishman. <laughs> so uh, that would be uh, that would going through uh, the Americans would be Robert E. Howard and Fritz Leiber. Uh, the Englishmen would be, of course, uh, uh, Professor Tolkien and Michael Moorcock. And of course, our English, our American wish was Englishman is uh, the uh, the inevitable H.P. Lovecraft. So that's that is for a general for the most part that that, that is our, our famous five, and all of them have had an impact over um, uh, over fantasy role playing, beginning with Dungeons and Dragons, which of course is that's where we get this appendix end from. Uh, but I think in the long run, we we're going to discover that a lot of the elements uh, don't necessarily come from the famous five. For example, I don't think we're going to talk much about Tolkien tonight because no. uh, I think everybody in this room is at least you know somewhat familiar with Tolkien and the fact that you know we, his his contributions to fantasy role playing are, are pretty evident. So yeah, so we won't waste too much time there. Actually, maybe why don't you mention each famous five and we can each talk about what we perceive as having come from come from that author in D and D. Okay. Because it's surprising sometimes I think what what did come from these authors or what didn't come from these authors. Okay. You, you go one by one. You right. can see us up. Okay. All right. Well, obviously, I, I'm the lead writer for GCC Lankmar, so I've spent the last you know year, two years of my life reading and rereading Fritz Leiber, so I'm pretty much down to it. Uh, basically, uh, in D&D, &D, uh, any sort of concept of a thieves' guild uh, can be directly tried to, to Leiber, and the famous thieves' guild of Lankmar. Uh, any fantasy city, whether it be you know a fantasy city that you've created, whether it be the classic Greyhawk, whether it be Waterdeep, whether it be you know those are all that, that's Plato's that's, I say that's Plato's of the cave. I mean those are all shadowy reflections of Lightmar. Uh, so the idea of the, the you know the seedy underbelly metropolis so that uh, that can all be you know traced basically to what the, the library has given us. Thieves um, can't. I know it's right. Which one? Thieves can't. Thieves. Uh, these, no, surprisingly not. Okay. Yeah, uh, that is that doesn't really appear in library stuff. Okay. But the idea of the thieves guild and the idea of you know uh, the kind of the, the classic fantasy uh, metropolis with a seedy underbelly, uh, I think that that is pretty much uh, that, that is that is the classic uh, library contribution. You can also argue were rats too, thanks to sort of <laughs> life farm. But you know that's <laughs> so. 
So it's safe to say if somebody in here wanted to um, focus an adventure around thieving or, or thievery, it'd be great to read uh, Fritz Leiber's work. Definitely, definitely. Any any of his any of his stories that take place in Lankmar proper, uh, there's some great ones. Thieves' House, uh, the Swords of Lankmar, entire novel set in uh, Lankmar itself. Uh, that's that's a great place to start. Um, uh, I, I would advise, uh, especially a lot of his earlier works. Um, that definitely. If, so if you're if you're looking for a CD underbelly, you know, like, uh, library is a way to go. Who's next on the list? Uh, next on the list, uh, we'll, we'll stick with Americans. We'll go Robert E. Howard. So, Rob, you want to go? Well, no, but I was gonna. Your the the library CD underworld leads really well into like Tower of the Elfin, right? Where yeah. where we have Conan performing the role in the, in the CD underbelly, mm -hmm. you know, performing thieves tasks. And, and so it's, it's, it's interesting how those two, there's an aspect of Conan that, that, that bleeds really well into the, mm -hmm. into the, the library fiction, this the sort of fantasy noir. Right. But you know, I, I think even there, we're going to start where, uh, I mean, uh, Conan, we see, Conan we see is, is a more, you know, he's a more primal, he's a more elemental figure. So, right. And, and so, I mean, so he, he doesn't ha necessarily have a lot of the city adventures. But even the city adventures, it, it, it's got the classic uh, Robert E. Howard. The theme of his his stories was always civilization versus barbarism. Yeah. Like that, that is like the main element of all his stories. So that's a classic kind of a contradiction where all of Liber's, Liber's characters tend to be more urbane. Uh, you know, even Faffer. I mean, Faffer, he's from he's he's a classic Conan figure, but he has training as a scald, and you know, he actually embraces civilization when he, he first meets it. Like he can't wait to get to you know, he can't wait to give off, throw off his savage upbringing in the cold north, and you know, climb up down the mountains to see what's going on in the big city. Right. Where Conan was just like ah, fah, you know, you know, crush it underneath you, destroy. Right. Yeah. There's, there's the wolf, and then there's the sheep. Yeah, well, the wolf yeah, exactly. I'll tell you what struck me about Robert E. Howard was I before I read much of this I perceived Conan as being the archetypal fighting man like I, I thought this is where the D&D fighter came from and I read it and it, it, it really it doesn't seem that way at all the D&D fighter is not Conan has thieving skills right. and, and um, you know, doesn't use armor most of the time like so many things of the, the classic D&D fighter don't seem to come from Conan and it wasn't until I read Edgar Rice Burroughs and his you know John Carter of Mars mm -hmm. or, or he actually uses the term fighting man um, and that's where I realized that's where I think Gygax got the concept of the fighter the way it's expressed in D&D. And a lot of the dungeon stuff, because in the forwards, he tended to yeah. mention the black pits of Barsoom over and over. Yeah, for sure. So who's next on the list? Remind us. Uh, next on the list, we'll go, actually, we'll, 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 we'll make our way across the ponds and we'll hit with Lovecraft. So, right. you know, so he's the other American. What is his, con uh, what is his contribution to it? Um, well, I mean, obviously, what is it? Uh, the big one that everybody points to is the, the uh, Courtois. The Kuatoa, yeah. the classic fishmen of the underworld, which you know uh, they all offer a, a certain uh, debt to uh, Shadow Over Innsmouth and, and and Lovecraft's Deep Ones, uh, you know the horrible aquatic humanoid uh, inbred, uh, what have you. Uh, that that we get a physical aspect from it. Um, I, I, I think I think that um, like Gygax, I think he enjoyed like a good, you know, a good kind of eerie. Like he loved that kind of you know esoteric. Not necessarily everything needs to be described. Um, you know, like weird. I mean, every everybody says you know Lovecraft tentacles are synonymous, but it's not really. It is it is that classic like it's so horrible that I lack the vocabulary to describe, which is a neat little trick because it puts it in your head and kind of makes your imagination do the do the, the dirty work for you. Um, so that uh, but. Uh, but again, we're I mean we're, we're again we're also talking about the fact that you know, they, these are the famous five we do have an influence over, it, but yeah. not necessarily all the influence that we're going to going to talk about. We're going yeah. to be surprised over some of these influences. Yes. So who's next on the list? Uh, we'll go with uh, we'll go with Morcock. And okay. then we'll finish up with the professor. Morcock. Anybody who's ever played uh, or familiar with White Cloud Mountain? Yeah. I've only played the adventure. I haven't actually played it. Black Razor. Black Razor, the, the sword that sucks souls, and uh, and you know for the most part. Uh, most people will are more familiar with Morcock and the concept of alignment, and you know there is law and there is chaos and there is the balance, there is neutrality. But we'll kind of actually discuss where that actually comes from. Uh, but uh, that you know uh, Morcock definitely played a big role on you know the, the early the, the choosing of alignments, and before it became like a moral code, it was more. I've always interpreted it as alignment. It's like you you know when you have an alignment, you are aligned with a force. You know, it's not like well, I'm lawful good, so I can't do that, or I'm chaotic evil, so I do. That. No, like you know, I I am my in the cosmic plane. I'm on the side of law. You're on the side of you know. You may be a real jerk and be on the side of law, and you may be a great guy, but you embrace chaos. So you know, uh, I think that I think that's a good thing. And then, of course, we'll finish up with Tolkien. Wait, 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 Can I speak to Morcock? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
for whatever reason, having read the Outer Books in high school, when I was introduced to D&D as a teenager, I played a elf fighter mage, mm -hmm. and I just automatically went to basing him on Elric. Mm -hmm. I happened to tell that story to Tim Cass, and he went, oh, absolutely, that's what it was based on. That's what Gary was oh, thinking really? about. And I was like, okay, well, <laughs> somehow telepathically, I got that. Uh -huh. That's cool. <laughs> so I, the, guy, the idea of a guy with a sword and spells. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think also the idea, of, in my mind, planar travel, plane hopping, all that kind of stuff, in my mind, yeah, I associate with yeah. mm -hmm. At least, at least when I read, when I read that, it finally clicked to me how D and D has the manual of the planes and, and all those things. And of course, uh, Professor Tolkien, the idea of a of a party of adventurers gathering together, and there's a bunch of humans, and then they're, they're token halflings for three, and then there's a dwarf, and then there's an elf, and you know the entire ranger class we owe to Strider and Aragorn and the Rangers of the North. And uh, somebody decided, I really want to play Strider, so I'm going to write up that character class and submit it to Dragon Magazine, and then it's going to become canon. So. Um. And now I'm going to mention something, and Mike, correct me if I'm wrong. If I remember correctly, Tolkien comes a full generation, at least half a generation after the first three mentioned. Because um, Howard, Liber, um, and Lovecraft were all published in Weird Tales. Right. And they all share Farnsworth Wright as the editor. Mm -hmm. Remember this correctly? Yep. They all had certain artists illustrate them. Of course, Virgil Finley and some of the other um, mm -hmm. um, sort of famous guys from that era. Right. Um, let's see, more coffee. I didn't know that. This is a good seminar. <laughs> 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 we're not taking notes? <laughs> yeah, so actually, the crazy thing about um, a lot of this list, and we'll talk about it more, but a lot of it actually originates essentially in the early 30s with mm -hmm. a single publication called Weird Tales and a single editor named Farnsworth Wright. Right. And a very small <coughs> group of artists who collectively illustrated. Um, first Weird Tales, and then later on influenced the illustrators who in turn became the guys behind DC Comics, who Guy Gags also credits in like the fourth sentence in here. Um, anyway, it's a small group of, uh, dude, we should talk. Okay. Uh, yeah, but one editor named Farnsworth Wright is the man who published the majority of these guys in their original incarnation long before Tolkien. Right. Tolkien well, came far after these guys. Actually, technically, The Hobbit was in the 30s, was published. Okay, in, was it? Yes, it was published in the UK at the, the time it escapes from but it did. It was like a children's story, right. and it didn't have much. It wasn't because it wasn't until we start getting Lord of the Rings, and Lord of the Rings came out in the fifties. It was post World War Two, yeah. and it, we, it doesn't. It didn't really make that much of a splash in the United States until um, there was actually there, uh, there's there was a, a company there's a publishing house who started printing paperback versions of it, and they technically didn't have the license to do it. <laughs> and the printing of that coincided with the sixties, the age of Aquarius, you know, the kind of the opening yeah. of the new age and everything. And of course. Led Zeppelin and yeah, so so that's where we owe. Actually, that's the biggest debt that D and D owes Tolkien because that brought into the that brought in the fantasy, like specifically the fantasy section in Chainmail, which was a set of miniature uh, wargaming rules. There's one. There's a 16 page chapter in the very back of that, which was explicitly written. So if you wanted to do the Battle of Helm's Deep or the Battle of Five Armies, okay. you could do that. And so that you know that brought it. This this, this man looks like he, he's oh yeah, <laughs> but yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, that's where you get your Frodo lives buttons, and which I still have one. I have one yeah. lives back home and everything. But yeah, that's that's actually probably the biggest thing that Tolkien has is he his contribution, the, the fact that they bootlegged these bo books, brought fantasy back into the mainstream, and because the counterculture kind of embraced it, there was like all these publishing houses were like like there's a gold mine that we're not tapped here. So that they were, they went back and they discovered that all these weird tales and stuff were kind of out of copyright and you know, yeah. it was kind of endeavorous. So they started cranking out paperback versions of it. And anybody at that time who was writing fantasy, like, oh, your fantasy is complete crap, but it's you know it'll sell, so we'll publish it. And that became that's one of the reasons again fantasy has this reputation of being just such you know just trash literature because it was again the machine was just trying to make money. So and that was the era when. Because it all goes back to certain guys. Edgar Rice Burroughs also got his start under Farnsworth Wright being published in Weird Tales, mm -hmm. I remember correctly, a lot of the serialized novels. And a lot of his stuff was, um, later when the Ace paperback versions of his came out, Rory Crinkle did the cover art, and Rory Crinkle was the mentor to Frank Rosetta, who later went on to illustrate uh -huh. Robert E. Howard in his second incarnation by Ace Paperbacks, which is where it exploded in like the 60s. Right. And that was all stuff that had been published like 30 to 40 years earlier in Weird Tales with different artists. Actually, because the, the artist who originally illustrated Conan is Margaret Brundage, who's actually a woman illustrating in an era of male authors, and she was the first person to ever illustrate Conan. And her 
the way she depicted him was totally different from how mm -hmm. from basically every subsequent generation of Conan illustrations. Right. I love I love the early pulps. I mean, there's a great one. There's the classic one of like Elric. He's got like a big um, almost like a gnome hat, you know. And he's got like you know a big sword, and he, he doesn't look like you know, necessarily like the albino, you know, the, the you know live kind of fey creature that we've we've envisioned him. It's, it's again, it's one of those things like we need like this, and you know, they obviously the artist had only a vague idea of what he or she was supposed to be, you know. <laughs> we're supposed to be illustrating. Yeah. So, um, so tell, tell, let's talk about alignments. So because Morcott got it from Anderson. Line, yes, line got it, yes. Uh, three hearts, three lines. Uh, so if you guys don't realize, Anderson's the first guy on here. Yes. He was the guy with the core original concept of alignment um, in the way that we think about it in D&D &D terms. And it was Morcott who made a huge deal out of it, but it, at least from, my, from what I can tell, it originated with Anderson. Right, that's <laughs> correct, as far as, as, far as I, I've been able to determine as well. Uh, those of you who don't know, three hearts and three lines is actually it's about a uh, a man, uh, a human man who uh, through for he's actually during World War II he's fighting on a beach in Denmark and uh, he expects that he's going to die being gunned down by Germans. Next thing you know, he wakes up in this forest and uh, he's kind of wandering. He finds this horse that has a suit of armor on and he gets on. And he starts exploring and he finally realizes that he's kind of in this weird fantasy world that has echoes of of, of uh, human history to it. And he, he he learns that there's there's the fairy land, and the fairies are all aligned with chaos, and they're trying to take over the land of humanity. So uh, the humanity is aligned with law. So the two of them are kind of you know at odds, uh, where where chaos is actually trying to break down the laws of reality and kind of oversweep the land. And there are a few kind of shady characters who don't uh, who don't who don't you know throw in on either side, and there are kind of our neutral characters. But yeah, but um, but again, I think I think a lot of that has to do with the fact is that Gygax was coming, D and D was coming out of the whole war game thing, and you really needed less, you needed less moral guidance than you needed like a divide, you know, you needed size, and you know, law versus chaos is that you know that's the it's the great you know way to kind of get started, us versus you, you know, you know, uh, rather than like okay, I'm lawful and I can't do that, you know, it's like you guys are obviously evil, we must stop you, and no, you're evil, we must stop. Now let me point out one more similarity, similarity, and then we'll talk more about our about our favorite authors. Okay. But, but, but he has that uh, that concept of the modern man who's then confronted with fantasy or transported to a mm -hmm. fantasy world and so on. And back in the day, that was a very common trope to get. Basically, the way they started every adventure was you're a modern man and you're transported back somehow. Like Edgar Rice Burroughs did that with John Carter of Mars, who was mm -hmm. a Confederate soldier, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, and then you have it's throughout a lot of these. But, but one that this makes me think of is because Abraham Merritt, um, who also was published by Weird Tales and was uh, Lovecraft actually named Abraham Merritt as one of his primary inspirations and sort of a generation removed. Um, but a lot of his stories involved, like the origin of Drow in D&D is, is credited to the Moonpool, um, and which is again about modern sailors who find a strange um, island, like a weird edifice, and they sort of get behind this sort of weird stone door and they go to this underground world, and it's like modern man meets fantasy again. Mm -hmm. And, that, and that's very that's very Burroughs that Pellucidor, you know, yeah, Pellucidor, exactly. that, yeah, the whole underworld of you know, and uh, I guess uh, we'll get into it. Uh, um, uh, uh, Margaret St. Clair, yeah. she does the shadow people. That's all yeah. that this other, you know. So a lot of basically one of the common one of the common themes we'll have is you know the person out of place, yeah. uh, you know. So you know either whether it's whether it's a, the complete their locale or their time period or you know or, or, or even their own planet. So the yeah. shadow art. Yeah. And this honestly, this reading this list led me. Uh, Deeper and deeper into back towards weird tales, because mm -hmm. Abraham Merritt nobody's ever nobody's heard of him today. Like it's hard to even find his stuff in bookstores. And when he was alive, his book sold over a million copies. It, it's hard to believe that he was doing this back in I think he published even in the twenties, but definitely in the thirties. Yeah, I mean he was um, obviously he was obviously he had stuff out prior to I mean or, or at least contemporary with Lovecraft, but Lovecraft yeah. was citing as an influence. So, yeah. yeah, and he's 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 a um, he was a newspaper man by trade, and he was the, like the editor to American Weekly or. Something, Harper's Weekly, something like that, and, and on the side he wrote these fantasy novels that were you know, really well received at the time, and, and a lot of the artists who he worked with he actually would employ for the newspaper, and then also they'd illustrate his sort of fantasy novels on the side. Um, and now he's kind of faded from view, but his, his prose is really archaic, and it's kind of hard to, I find it hard to read, it doesn't grip you like modern, short, action-packed prose, but you just end up in these stories that feel like D&D adventures, because it's guys running around underground fighting what are essentially drow, mm -hmm. um, in a different, I don't know, it just feels like a different era when I read his stuff. So why don't we talk maybe now about who our, our favorite appendix in authors are and how they've influenced our own work, our own writing. Um, Who wants to go first? I'll jump in there. So, I mean, uh, for me, Jack Vance was, uh, is probably my favorite. <clears throat> um, so I did, uh, a while back Joe asked us who our favorite authors were and uh, uh, had us come up with an adventure that was kind of inspired um, by the fiction of that author. 
So the uh, 998th Conclave of Wizards, um, if you read that one before, um, there's a, a lot of elements that I try to take from um, you know, just fancy and elements that I tried to share. Uh, uh, mostly it comes from like the Morayon stories where there's these like super wizards that get in this traveling city and go into space to look for um, uh, this particular person, but also like where to find Ion stones. Um, so, and that's where in uh, 990th Conclave where we get the, uh, you know, the space city of Sis and all that stuff, um, rather than just like a floating palace, it's an entire city instead, and just kind of took off from there. Um, so uh, as far as, you know, what Vance brought to D&D, &D, um, yeah, everyone's heard of Vancey and magic, so, and, D and D that came across as you know you cast a spell and you forget it. Um, so uh, usually you, you know you have to wait till the next day to be able to cast it again. Um, and, uh, that shows up a lot in Vance's work where the wizard or magicians actually calls them usually um, cast a spell and it sudden somehow disappears from the brain and you have to go and force the you know the arcane symbols back into your brain to be able to. Uh, you know, put out the spell for us once again. Um, one of the things that's pretty interesting, though, is, uh, you know, if you go back and read Vance, there's nothing in, you know, Vancey and Magic that says um, that you have to wait till the next day to cast the spell or anything like that. Um, there's multiple examples of characters who, you know, grab the spell book and quickly, um, you know, force the, the, the words into their brain and, and cast them out right away. Um, so, was one interesting thing that is in D&D, &D. Um, and if you go back and look at the source material, you can kind of reinterpret it for yourself, what was there, um, and how it came out in AD&D &D is one person's interpretation, but it doesn't match necessarily what's in the source material. And if I remember correctly, there's a lot of stuff in D&D that's lifted directly from Vance. Oh, yeah. Ion stones. Yep, yep. Um, the spell polychromatic, uh, was polychromatic. Prismatic spray. Prismatic, and, literally yeah. the exact same spell. Yeah, color spray. Color yeah. spray. Yeah. 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 Imprisonment. Yep. Down you go. Forward yep. yep. And you can see Gygax reading that, taking notes, and then popping exactly that stuff into his game. It's cool to read it to me because you see exact inspirations for DD. And, oh, just one other thought I had the other day. I was, I was going back and I uh, was reading uh, some... Dying Earth book that they had this monster called the Herbs in there, and I had just been reading the the uh, Appendix N list again, and I was like, oh, but, uh, no, herbs. <coughs> I forgot. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back. It's Friday at Gen Con. It's yeah. wild. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So obviously, I would say uh, up until now, it would have been Liber. Uh, literally, when I, I discovered Fritz Leiber thanks to uh, deities and demigods, uh, because there was a whole chapter on on Neunian, uh, you know, gods, and, and at this point, this point, this was before Amazon, this was before internet, this was before there, was, you couldn't just get a book, you know, if you, if you couldn't get it through interlibrary alone, and, and at that point, like most of the library stuff was out of print, so I only had this vague kind of interpretation of what I had read in deities and demigods. There was all these great hints about like these guilds and like the gods of Lankmar, and this this whole huge fantasy and and as everybody knows it's like you know you always build up the best things in your head you know so it was I I just you know I all I had was what I had to deal with there and it wasn't until 88 when I was actually in a, in a pharmacy and what a little spinner racks you know back when they had you know paperback novels on the spinner racks there there was I saw this one it was the knight and naval sword by this Fritz Liber guy and the fact that I read that and I still enjoyed Liber is if anybody has ever read knight and knight and naval swords that collection of like his last stories not Liber's greatest work. I mean, and, and like at that point they had retired. They're on like fantasy, like Iceland, and I'm like, where is like the city and the gods of land? Like I almost felt cheated, you know. Like at the point, like Fafnir has lost a hand. Like this is not has absolutely nothing to do with like you know what I had read about. And then when I was in college, um, my local, my college library for some reason had the entire run, the Greg printing runs, and I was just like, okay. Let's start with number one, and we pulled it off the shelf. And by the time I got done, it totally changed on how I actually run D and D and what my expectations are for it. 
Now, having reread the entire series two and a half times over the last couple of years, let's just say it was going to be a while before I read the library for, re for recreation anytime soon. So, um, so I'd have to say, of course, you know, as, as I guess, uh, Manly Wade Wellman, I've been getting a lot of enjoyment of talking about one of the lesser novels on Appendix N. Not only his Silver John stories, which are all set in, you know, fantasy, you know, well, well not my version of fantasy, but set in the, like, uh, in North Carolina in the Appalachian Mountains. And it was very, you know, it's just this kind of wandering balladeer who inspired the bard class. Uh, you know, dealing with kind of these supernatural threads with songs and ideas that he knows, less more thinking and less, you know, um, you know uh, we're just going to pack the part right now. Um, he's also does about this great stuff like Hawk the Mighty. Hawk the Mighty is a caveman set in like, you know, you know, he's like one of the first you know, crow magnets fighting Neanderthals. And um, uh, Manly Wigman has just such a wonderful command of language and he knows the songs that he works into his, into his, uh, into his work and everything. And I'm a big fan for, for great flowing language and everything. So I would say currently with Liber and Wellman, um, but in respect for various other jumps. And for those of you who don't know, Dominion Games has the license to publish Fritz Liber's works in our role-playing form, which is one of the reasons Mike has read it two and a half times. Yes. <laughs> um, I was going to mention Lord Dunsany. He's one of those, you literally never hear his name. Like when I was combing these bookstores for Appendix in books, I find his stuff in like one out of ten bookstores, maybe. You know, even in new bookstores, it's hard to find. And he wrote this really sort of dream world kind of stuff um, that in my mind sort of fleshed out elves a lot. Uh, it's just sort of, um, it's hard to describe, man. He, like he said, he uses a, a language that's so flowery and, and dreamish that it, that it just, it's one of those, when you read his stuff, I guess, start thinking differently and it includes different words that I never come across and you just, you, I feel transported to a different place, the way he writes. Um, but it really, for me, got across the idea of, of elves as dreamers or, or, or dreamland type stuff, fairies, all that kind of stuff. And you've mentioned the dreamlands, is that he was he was a huge influence on Lovecraft, and Lovecraft yeah. first got started. In fact, our, our Lovecraft's early dream, like, you know, the dream quest, the unknown Kadath and everything, like, that was him basically trying to aid Lord Dunsany. You know, that, so he was actually literally trying to, you know, write in that style, and it took him a while for him to, for him to find his own voice. There you go. So, yeah, so there's a big role, a big influence on that. Cool. Turn over to you, Jim. My answer changes, but in the last uh, four or five years, it's been Jack Vance, and uh, because I only got to him very recently, Fred Saberhagen, and uh, my reasons are more conceptual. Almost all the, the parts of this list that were written in the teens, 20s, and 30s was at a time when uh, culturally uh, there wasn't the hard division between fantasy and science fiction that we uh, have in our culture today. It was all kind of one thing. So. Almost all of these authors have some mixture going on. I mean, the elephant in the top, Conan's Tower, is an alien. I mean, Lovecraft's Elder Gods are power, you know, aliens from out there in the uh, universe. And in Jack Vance's Dying Earth series, magic and technology are the same thing. It's so far in the future that the spells they're memorizing and casting are just sets of equations and verbal and somatic components that change the laws of physics. And Vance comes out and says that they're basically the same thing. Um, Fred Saberhagen, uh, I read the Swords books in the 80s, probably a lot of you are the age that you read those, and then the, the I just got to the prior series, Empire of the East, where it takes place in a post-apocalyptic future in which, uh, kind of like the Ralph Bakshi movie Wizards, magic has come into being as a new set of laws in physics, and some of the physics that enable technology have changed, and some have not, and there's old technology still laying around. The reason I like those things is because that idea that fantasy and science fiction were more one thing and could uh, freely intermingle back in the 20s and 30s is not our, our conception now, and that can be leveraged into increasing the mystery and suspense in an adventure, making adventure extra cool. And it's right there, Gary was doing it, because it's right there in AD&D where you get the... Uh, Expedition from the Barry Peaks. Well, here's a, a better example, I think. Um, in the artifact section of the Dungeon Master's Guide, I, I get the, I'm dyslexic, so I'm gonna try and say it right. Just correct me if I'm wrong. The device of Quailish, which as a player character in D&D, you stumble across, and it's this magical device that's got some machine-like as aspects, but lets you travel underwater and enables the underwater adventures. What it really is, is a submarine, shaped like a lobster. That's steampunk <laughs> lobster. Yeah. And, but but you get your characters get to go through the excitement of slowly coming to that realization because there's a sort of mixture of, of, of mag, uh, fantasy and science fiction all together the same thing. And obviously, since I just wrote a game where this is a big key element of the game, I'm a fan. Yeah. <laughs> Let me add one thing to that. So if you go back, if you uh, if you pick up old copies of Weird Tales or just look, 
I collect like books of old pulp cover art, stuff like that. The term science fiction, the term fantasy is a modern conception. Those magazines would use the term scientific, scientification. Right? It's a word that you don't even see anymore, but there was no science fiction, there was no fantasy, that did not exist. It was scientification, was the term they used on their front cover, or just tales of the unusual, tales of the weird, tales of the fantastic, terms like that. You never saw the phrase fantasy or science fiction, they were one universal genre. It's only later, I don't know when, somewhere along the line they split and became separate genres. It wasn't like astounding, it was, a, one, it was one of the pulps, one of the pulps, so like it, wasn't, it wasn't weird tales, it was like, you know, like, uh, like when it wasn't planned stories either. But like they decided that they, their stories were going to be set like it had to have a scientific premise. So and like they wouldn't accept anything that was just like a weird story. So that kind of that kind of brought about the the element of what we know science fiction. That left a lot of like the weird you know the weird fiction out in the you know out in the cold. Like you, can, you know I can't write about you know, rocket ships or anything. And, you know so I guess I can't get published. So that was probably Gernsback. Yeah, you're right. You know Gernsback. Yeah. Alright, I finally read that list. I remember what I was trying to say. <laughs> Burbs! Burbs! I think it's Edward Rice Burroughs. And there's just, there's a monster called the Herb. The oh, really? Yeah. Oh, so I think that's it's Edward Rice Burroughs. I get it. I call out to him. Finally. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that's a great point because yeah. um, a lot of these guys, like Robert E. Howard wrote fiction that was set in Lovecraft's world. Right. Library did yeah. the same thing. Yeah. A lot of these guys wrote the same era and were sort of feeding off each other and, and supporting each other like that with self reference yeah. and stuff. So, yeah. Harley, back to yeah. you. No, so um, all con long, I've been running um, a pseudo war game we're calling Warlords of the Purple Planet. And and, and for that work, it's, it's very clearly drawn from like Edgar Rice Burroughs and Robert E. Howard, who both lived very strongly in mind. But when I was writing Purple Planet, um, you know, Joseph gave me the books first. He's like, all right, Harley, you need to read these. What I, what I found was use, most useful for me as inspiration was not the, the books themselves, but the artists that illustrated the books. So, um, I'm going to posit that there's a there's an unfortunate literary bias in this list. Well, it's a literary list, inspirational readings. But maybe Goodman Games needs to compile Appendix O because all these books were sold, perhaps, on the basis of the cover, right? So who were the artists that went hand in hand with each of these these authors that um, you know, like like Frazetta lives really strong with me. But you know, you're describing other artists. Like there must be a a, a visual catalog. That, that goes with all of these that can serve as an equal inspiration. We just have to dig a little deeper. We're stuck with you, dude. Uh, you're, you're, you're right. There's a, um, what is his name? There's one, Frank, uh, Paul Frank. Paul Frank. Frank R. Paul. Frank R. Paul was the artist who illustrated the, uh, I don't know, hundreds of pulp article, uh, pulp magazines. I have two books of his work from, basically most of these guys were illustrated by Frank R. Paul, okay. who, who is yeah. amazing. He only, all his covers are primary, but it's all like bright red, bright yellow bright blue, bright green, it's, it's very bold, bright colored illustration, nothing at all like Frazetta and the guys who came later with the moody dark stuff. Wow. Um, but he did a ton of the covers, Frank R. Paul. Um, so what, what's crazy is if you read this, uh, so I'm gonna read a sentence from Gary Gaiax. Then too, countless hundreds of comic books went down and the long gone EC one certainly had their effect. So I'm gonna talk briefly about art. Um, anybody here heard of the Flegels? The Flegels is a group of artists that were the primary illustrators behind EC Comics. So, you guys heard of EC Comics? A couple guys. Um, you heard of Mad Magazine? So William Gaines. Yeah, so, so some of the most amazing art of our generation happened because of a boating accident. So there was, uh, there there was no boating accidents. No, no, this is true. There was, a, there was a company called Educational Comics, EC Comics, run by William Gaines' father, Gaines Sr. Unfortunately, was killed in a boating accident. Then William Gaines inherited this publishing empire that was built upon educational, like kids' comics, like ducks and stuff that teach you how to read or whatever. Um, and Bill Gaines didn't want to do that, and he was kind of a rebel. So he switched the company's initials were EC. He switched it from educational comics to entertaining comics, and went and hired this crazy group of artists to to do stuff before the comics code really existed. And they did stuff that pushed the envelope in so many ways, um, and then he eventually went out of business. But the stuff he did for a period of five or six years has now been reprinted constantly, pretty much continuously since then, by, by one publisher after another. And he recruited this group of artists that included what were called the Flegels, um, including um, a little-known artist who had not succeeded anywhere else named Frank Rosetta, his mentor was named Roy Crinkle, another guy named Al Williamson, um, Wally Wood, like this small group of artists who went on to become 
famous, incredibly famous for doing incredible work at the peak of their career at this time. And they later on pretty much all became famous for this period. Like Al Williamson was the guy who influenced uh, George Lucas to on all the visuals for Star Wars. Like when George Lucas got big and he had the opportunity to hire whoever he wanted, he hired Al Williamson to illustrate the, the comic book, the, the Empire Strikes Back comic book, and then he hired Al Williamson to do all the art for the Star Wars uh, newspaper strip for years, and that was what Al Williamson did in his sort of twilight years, thanks to George Lucas. Actually, if I remember correctly, that was Ross Mandy. Um, no, that was Al Williamson, actually. Well, I know, but I, I, I do have the original, uh, you know, I kept the strips there, He may have done some as well. Yeah, I know Al Williamson did the the Empire Strikes Back um, adaptation. Yeah, they just republished. IDW just republished that. Yeah, and then he did the Star Wars comic strip. There might have been a difference between the Sunday edition and the weekend edition or something, but he did Possibly. years of the, the Star Wars. Yeah, I, do, comic I do remember that Manning did color. Yeah, well, actually, that's a good point though because. Um, Edgar Rice Burroughs was the origin, because Russ Manning did Edgar Rice Burroughs, Tarzan. Mm -hmm. Edgar Rice Burroughs was the origin point for a lot of these guys in the sense that he wrote, um, obviously, Tarzan, wrote John Cotter of Mars, wrote a wide number of sort of science fiction and fantasy characters that were later illustrated by, by various people who went on to build careers. That It all centers around the same stuff. Um, so the Fleagles, including Frank Rosetta, whose mentor was Roy Krinkle. Roy Krinkle did a lot of things, but among them were illustrating the covers of the ace paperbacks of Edgar Rice Burroughs' works. So what's crazy, your point is, you know, Gygax reads Edgar Rice Burroughs and puts him in this list, but the books he read by Edgar Rice Burroughs were probably illustrated by Roy Crinkle, who later got Frank Frazetta his first gigs doing book covers, who later went on to illustrate Robert E. Howard, and later went on to illustrate in a group called the Fleagles, the EC Comics, that Gygax again references here. It's a very small group. I mean, if you start just reading enough of it, you realize it all originates from a very small group of people who then influenced like, generations after that. Anyway, I've been rambling for a while, but yes, you're right, it's worth talking about the art at some point, maybe another seminar, because there's a crazy amount of overlap and sort of it feeding influences. The next program, guys, is going to have an appendix O. Right, <laughs> art, amazing appendix art, yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry, what do you want to finish? No, that's yeah, it, so that's all, that's, yeah. Okay. Um, so I have an idea. I, I'm going to read a sentence down here that to me sort of blew my mind when I first read it, and then let's talk about this sentence. Okay. So, you know, you, you think of D&D and you think of Tolkien, right? That's where everybody goes. It, 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 once you're past Tolkien, you go to certain other places is where you think D&D came from. But if you go below the list of authors, there's a sentence here that says, the most immediate influences upon AD&D. And Gygax tells you what he considers the biggest influences on D&D. Like, who's not in this list? And who is in this list? We're probably DeCamp and Pratt. Who? Right? The most immediate influences, the first one he mentions is DeCamp and Pratt. Robert E. Howard, Fritz Leiber, Jack Vance, Howard Lovecraft, and Abraham Merritt. And most modern fantasy people now have read Tolkien, if any, but, but past that, you know, maybe Robert E. Howard and maybe Jack Vance or Fritz Leiber, but many of the people on this list to well, Lovecraft. Lovecraft, yeah, Lovecraft yeah, yeah. He's, he's having his day. But that's horror, right? And that's but, considered one of the biggest influences on TV per Gary Guy guys. It, it is, but you know, if you get the Dreamland stuff, the Dreamland yeah. stuff is really fantasy is what it is. But yeah, but yeah. I mean, but but exactly, you know, uh, you know, decamp and merit, or you know, you know, oh yeah, I'm gonna go out and get myself, I'm gonna go see that new, uh, you know, movie's been on the merit, you know, novels, you know, like, <laughs> big billion dollar version, you know. <laughs> creep shadow creep, you know, coming soon to a theater near you. you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a reason AD and D magic system is based on Jack Vance and not Tolkien because Gandalf never throws anything bigger than a lightning bolt. You know, there you go. Yeah. And, and from a, but from a game design point, it makes sure that they can only cast a certain amount of spells. It keeps them from running over the rest of the character. So from a game design uh, point, it makes balance. sense. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so now let's talk about the camp and Pratt. And it's been years since I read them, so I'm going to go in memory here. Um, but he's listed here. Um, the camp actually appears in two rows, but the second row, the camp and Pratt. They, I call it Shea. Harold Shea series. I believe it, yeah. Is that how you pronounce it? I, 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 yeah. Shea. I'm from New York. We have Shea Stadium. There you go, Shea Stadium. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> so the, the Harold Shea series is about this uh, kid who sort of inadvertently becomes a magician, as I remember. Uh, no, uh, Harold Shea, that's the, uh, he develops a technique for traveling between dimensions. Mm -hmm. And he's a psychologist. That's right, psychologist, yep. And he's sort of, um, it's basically the D&D magic system, right? It's sort of, Comes, or my, let's debate it. It comes from Harold Shea. The part that I remember is the part about one of the things I walked away with. Remember the decimal part, decimal point part, where he casts a spell and he's off by one decimal and he creates, I think it was a hundred small dragons instead of one big dragon. <laughs> and I remember thinking like this whole concept of magic is, is mutable or you can make mistakes and screw it up, you know? And, I thought and, that was more Vance. Vance was definitely screw up yeah. or something. No, he definitely had that component too. But there is this specific scene where he makes, um, I think it's a, he gets a decimal point. Harold Shea gets a decimal point wrong in a spell. It's been a while for me too. I just yeah, remember him 
Well, the casting, a, casting a spell to make a troll look better, and he, the nose of the troll, and, he's, and he's, he actually brings out the elements of wax and makes it small, you know, kind of like... Okay, yeah, that's... Right, that's, that, that kind of like a spell component. Right. That kind of yeah. really was... Yeah, I thought uh, was Well, he would travel to different literary worlds. Yes. Because he wound up in the world of Orlando Furioso, the old uh, 16th century poem uh, about... Uh, sort of analogous with the Song of Roland. So there, he went through different magic systems. Uh, I do remember one where he wants to turn water into wine, so he has sugar, he has lumps of honey, which is sugar, and he has them labeled with, uh, like he has some with C, with H, and with O, and so he's making alcohol. And he's using them as, as material components yeah, to create alcohol. And actually, what he does is creates he creates rather strong brandy. <laughs> and this whole idea of a, a, a magic system—I don't know—to me, it's interesting to see how much of D and D magic comes from something that virtually nobody's read, and we all assume it's Tolkien, and mm -hmm. it's not necessarily Tolkien. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, we cut you off. You're going to say something really good. Oh, it's okay. He spoke to it. Okay, cool. You have a question over there. Well, I was just going to say, I'm reading the Harold Shea stories right now. So, because oh, um, I'm hosting an appendix and book club in New York that's starting next week. Um, it's going to be a monthly, <laughs> yeah, that's a monthly awesome. book club. Yeah, it should be fun. But your memory of the decimal points is correct. What happened uh, in there was he tried to bring a dragon about, had the decimal point in the wrong place, accidentally summoned 100 dragons, but they were vegetarians, so they were fine. <laughs> and then later he tried to do it again, but had the decimal point one way in the wrong direction, so he just summoned one very tiny one. So yeah, that, that's what was happening. Okay, that's what I, yeah. <laughs> but it, and it's just, it's interesting to me how, I don't know, that you have magic, D&D, you, you know, you cast a spell and it pretty much always works, and you roll your D4 and add your whatever level, and there's your magic missile, right? And in Herald J, so much of it is, um, it doesn't always work the way you wanted it. Yeah. So let's, anything else you guys want to add before I, yeah. we got a, what do we got? We got that's just interesting it. to me because one of the things I like about Dungeon Crawl Classics is a difference from D&D, because D&D, the magic, the spells are very much, engineering plans and equations yeah. in effect. You know what's gonna happen, unless your spell gets corrupted. And uh, I like the more appendix and influence in some ways that the PCC magic system works. It depends on what you roll. And that again just comes, in my mind, comes from appendix N. Um, and it, it's just, to your point, we call stuff fancy and magic, but it's just how you interpret right. Vance's version of magic. I mean, how would you interpret fancy and magic? Since you've read a lot of Vance recently, how would you, would you do it the D&D way, or is there something you do it differently? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I would say if you read the text um, that uh, you cast a spell, it disappears from your brain, and you need to take some amount of time um, to force it back in there. It, there's no, you know, waiting to the next day or anything like that. That's that's specifically in there. Um, as far as other points of magic, I mean, there's some uh, there's some spells that get messed up. I think you mentioned that, like. Uh, uh, Kajal uh, tries to cast something at, like at a uh, Iakunu's uh, spell book or something. It's That's right. uh, the uh, the one the, uh, the assist one, uh, for, forlorn insistment. Yes. And he messes it up, and he actually frees everybody that's been insisted for the last forty years that like a mile under the earth or something, and they all suddenly appear um, around him. And, um, That's right. He also runs that library too. He runs the Lords of Cornwall. He's a, his, his mentor gives him the great spell, the great spell that's guaranteed to wipe out all the enemy sorcerers of, of his employer. And so he, you know, he's he's goes like, "You want me to use a great spell?" He's like, he really wants to. And finally, he gets his moment. He, you know, he reads it. and He stumbles over a couple of words, and when he's done, like he's obliterated all his employer sorcerers. You know, and he gets, <laughs> he's like, "All right, time to get out of here." <laughs> so. But yeah, I don't know. Then later on in the stories, like Vance totally changes. There's you know these little creatures called Sandestins that actually do do the magic, and they're these like immortal creatures that can do anything. And you bind them into service by uh, enslaving chugs. It's like a whole thing. It just there's checks and yeah checks and balances and all this other stuff. Do you have a question? Uh, I was going to, uh, another point about the dancing magic was that there was a very low number of spells that a person could memorize. That's yeah, right. yeah, 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 that's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah I was like, the, the greatest yeah. magicians among them could, like, like number, seven, like, seven, seven spells or something. Or something. Yeah. 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 That's bullshit, man. Yeah. <laughs> 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 it seemed like, when I, when I was reading 
this, and I tried to read these back in the 80s. So, <laughs> and you'd read a book and you'd, you'd go, oh, this would make a great adventure, right? It seemed like that was more, and I, I, I mispronounced it all this year, these years, and I would call it Lieber. But, but Lieber had, um, like, all these encounters, right? And he didn't waste time. A friend of mine hated it because he didn't go into the pros of, you know, oh, you know, uh, Fafford the Great Monster wanted to get here. Oh, they're here next, you know. Right. Yeah. But you read Tolkien, and you just got this, uh, you just wanted to draw, you wanted to see the map of Moria. You wanted to see, you know, Rivendell and all of but how you populated it really wasn't, you know, because right. it, you, you could see this huge castle, you know, Isengard or anything else. But yeah, you could figure out maybe four or five rooms that you could do something in, and then you'd have, you'd have 180 more drawn. You go, eh, I can't really do much more. Well, yeah. I mean, that actually that even goes back to the, the the dynamics of the business at the time. I mean, uh, you know, Tolkien had this he had this great whole world and everything, and he had he had the luxury of writing a thousand pages. I mean, because Lord of the Rings was originally one book, and it was his publisher who said you have to divide this thing up. You know. Uh, where I mean, with, with, with Liber and Tolkien and Lovecraft and everything, they were writing for the pulps, and so they were looking to get yeah, paid. Right. So they weren't writing novels; they were writing short stories. You know, they were like thirty thousand words. Like you know, like that—that that was like an astronomical pay. I mean, the fact that the fact that how like Robert E. Howard actually managed to survive as a writer—I mean, he was just prolific. And I mean, I, this we just, Joe actually just lent me a, lent me a, a book on a, a biography on him, which brings up the fact is that. One of the I'm not a big fan of Robert E. Howard's because so many of his stories seem like you could just you know pull out Conan and put in Cull or pull out Cull and put in Solomon Kane and it's almost formulaic. And then it wasn't until I read this and realized that yes, it was formulaic because Robert E. Howard found out the formulas that the popes were looking for, and he knew that if he wrote in that style, like Farnsworth would 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 uh, would, would buy the story, and he had to support not only himself but his mother was sick and all the rest of it. He was you know so the reason there there was a reason for it. It wasn't that he was a bad writer. He's like, he knew that if I write these stories, I will get paid. So, uh, so I had to give him, I have to give him a lot of slack for, you know, yeah. all, everything that I thought bad about him. Yeah. But yeah, again, it's, you know, it's like, you know, uh, Robert E. Howard is like, you know, uh, Conan. Conan's story is like, yeah, in this one, he's a king, and this one, he's a cutthroat, and you know, it's like, and there's no, he didn't write them in chronological order. Like, oh, we're going to start with him as a thief, and it will end with, it, it wasn't until DeCamp came on later, and then they tried to kind of make a chronological history about this. Which, which is what's on, and Libra had the same thing with the Fafford and the Great Mouser, which is like, I got a cool idea for a story, why not? I mean, I mean, us as gamers, we can't really do that. We can't like, all right, you guys are six level this time, and then we'll get together next week, you'll all be first level. <laughs> um, I should mention this, uh, Fritz Libra was not exactly alone in, in writing, uh, yeah. there's a very good uh, illustration, I remember, from somewhere or another, you know, from the D&D &D days like that there, with Libra being Harry Otto Fisher. Yes. Yeah, Harry Otto Fisher was the great mouser at Bradford. Because they came up with those two characters because during the Depression they were both kind of out of work and everything and they were they would write letters back and forth to each other and to keep themselves entertained. <laughs> like Harry Otto Fisher actually came up with the idea of Bradford and the Great Mouser. And they would start, you know, they would start writing letters as these characters back and forth because it was a cheap form of entertainment. And they would come up with these daydreams of it. And Harry Otto Fisher wrote the first story. He wrote uh, Lords of Cornwall. He wrote the first part of Lords of Cornwall, and he never finished it. And somehow it became library stuff. Like he's, he's like, I ended up being in the chronicler of these guys. But yeah, but yeah, that, that's that's actually their reflections. So. so, guys, we have about five minutes left, and I was going to close by just I'm going to briefly talk about a couple guys on this list who. Uh, until I read them, I had no idea their significance. And just some of the more obscure names, not even that obscure, some of the guys in here have added something to D&D, and then if you guys want to throw anything, you can get at the end. But like, there's some guys on here, I'm going to the bottom, there's Stanley Weinbaum, you know? And uh, I don't think anybody's heard of him. <laughs> well, what I took away from him was, and I, I read his works and then walked away thinking, what's the big deal? But he was the first guy to ever depict aliens in a, um, in a manner that they weren't just bad guys coming to steal our women, but they actually had sort of cultures and intelligence and things yeah. like that. They were, they were yeah, uh, Isaac Asimov, he's, he, he puts it as the second greatest, uh, Stanley Jim, Jim, Jim Moore was, it's the second greatest thing to have in science fiction. 
because before him it was either like they were all bug-eyed aliens come to conquer yeah. Earth or Messiah figures or you know if not they just act like you know like uh, you know the uh, Burroughs Red Martians are basically just humans but they're red and they live on Mars or yeah. Stanley Gene Weidenbaum was the one who just came back okay they're aliens and they act in an alien fashion and you know they have their own culture and intelligence they have their own culture their own thought yeah. patterns and Stanley Gene Weidenbaum if you're not familiar with this with this stuff uh, most of this stuff has been reprinted now and then if you if you are a fantasy uh, game master or if you're a science fiction game master and you're looking like I need like a cool new monster or anything like that he has some doozies in there I mean, you can just rip them off wholesale and because nobody else has read them right exactly. <laughs> <laughs> not in the last like 80 years right. but that's a great example of a guy the work in my mind the work by modern standards is not phenomenal but when you guys he was the first that's what makes it amazing right um, and then a couple in here um, where am I going here so PJ Farmer the world of the tears series um, and Rogers Lasney so Jack of Shadows is a great thief story but the, the Amber series of course both of these again have this trope of you know the, the sort of modern man sort of pulled into a, a different sort of alternate reality different plane fantasy land etc but are both great in my mind for planar travel and different worlds and different places and things like that I got one yeah uh, Stanley Lanier, Hero's Journey, yeah. which is not just an independent yep. sin list, but cited by Jim Ward as one of the inspirations for Gam World because it's a post-apocalyptic story. Um, I could sell it to you in five minutes. Uh, uh, fighter monk riding a telepathic moose with a <laughs> semi-sentient bear for a buddy going on a giant hex crawl. And, and don't well, they have made a nuclear silo? Yes, yeah. yeah. They go in a nuclear silo, yes. And I think, I think Gary's got it on the list for the uh, hex crawl aspect yeah. of it. The cross-country journey on the long quest to go get the bad guys. Were they on a raft? Yes, yes, they were. Oh, no, you're thinking of Star uh Daybreak 2050. No, no, no. no uh, Stanley, yeah, Hero's Journey. They're going through the sunken city uh, out the, where the Great Lakes have expanded over and they're pulling through it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, I don't have that version. I don't have that version either. Unless, unless that's the cover that's, 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 that's the Valentine. That's the Valentine version. Okay. I'm sorry, both Commandy Number 1 and Starman Son have that have, oh, have the guy on the raft that. going through the ruins. I have that one, yes. <laughs> So we have just a couple minutes left. Any closing comments you guys want to make or anything else you want to throw out? Um, uh, the one thing, I, I've been reading a lot of like the lesser knowns that have been called Billy List. Uh, I am actually, absolutely love in love with Lee Brackett. Uh, I've not had much experience with her. Uh, did you have you read any Lee Brackett? You after Purple Planet, she is. I mean, she is just this huge like John John Eric Stark, like you know, raised by Venusians, and then you know he's like you know he's a classic fighting man who goes off, and it's you know it's it's a, just this beautiful. Beautiful setting, and she's got some great characters. She does great sword and planet stuff. She does not get enough. She does not get enough praise for the stuff. Well, and, and just to be clear, when George Lucas got big, he hired Lee Brackett yes, as a screenplay. Yes, Empire Strikes Back. He didn't use yes. any of her stuff, but he still paid her. Well, yeah, because, she, that was the last thing he did. Uh, um, because she was also wrote the big, the big sleep. sleep. Yeah, she, yeah, she, yeah, she, yeah, she started as a she started as a fiction writer, and then she went and did a bunch of Hollywood screenplays, including The Big Sleep and everything. But she is great. Um, and uh, again, uh, it's a product of the time and, of course, of the circumstances that they said. We have a list of here with 30 names in here. Three of them are women. None of them are anybody of color or anything like that. But, you know, uh, so uh, anything, you know, Lee Brackett was wonderful. Andre Norton, of course. Oh, yeah, go Andre Norton. Yeah, right, right, right. Uh, amazing. Right, 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 another one who was absent is C.L. Moore. C.L. Moore, NSA, Northwest Smith is absolutely, you know, that's beautiful. I love, I love Northwest Smith. Um, we forgot to talk about, too, the, um, <laughs> William Hope Hodgson. William Hope Hodgson should another be on there. Clark Ashton Smith, of course, yeah. is a great oversight. Um, well, we'll do another one sometime. We'll talk about everybody got left off. Right. Mix so, uh, Gen Con 2017, we all meet back here, and we'll cover yeah. it. <laughs> um, what, what one you haven't mentioned, just because the compilation is Andy Offit, Especially with the Sword Against Darkness, yeah, because that is a whole range of all of these names and a lot more. If you can find them, we got to wrap it up, guys. Yeah, so uh, we we hope we hope at least you've gotten some sort of historical background. I've got some new names, everything, stuff to check out when you get home. Most of the stuff is available on Amazon at the very least. You can get it for Kindles, you know, so you can't get the actual stuff. So. If, you, if you didn't bring up your ticket already, please bring up your ticket. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Uh,